This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. The only thing you have to do is make the phone call. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-340. 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Hope you had a great weekend this weekend at church. We did yesterday. Lots of people coming back, and that's always a really, really good thing. Um, Pray that the Lord spoke to your heart. I pray that you said yes to him. And... um, God is pleased. He's smiling at you if that's the case. Hey, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, just a couple of reminders. Our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies are all back in action. Uh, At 7 o'clock, the ladies' Bible study will be live-streamed at calvaryessay.com. Jocelyn Makasadia will be teaching tonight. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men, and then the junior high and the high school youth will also be here, so you can make it a family celebration. We're getting back to that kind of normal routine as well. So all of that is available, so let's get to the program. We're waiting for your phone calls. My first question is from Nancy. She asks, are carnal Christians real believers. Um, Nancy, I I don't know if maybe you live streamed our Bible study yesterday and you had some questions. We just opened 1 Corinthians, which was just a um, uh, an introduction really to the rest of the book. We went through the first nine verses. Um, But but carnal Christians, sadly, are real believers. We can't judge them. That's why Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares. You know, you can sit in church and people that look like Christians turn up at the end not being real. And people that didn't look like they were real Christians turn out to be real Christians. And we can't tell. Uh, That's left for the harvesting angels in the parable uh, at the end of the age. Um, Ultimately, Jesus, of course, knows their condition. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. The definition of carnal from my perspective, is a Christian who is being disobedient. 
That's a carnal Christian, a Christian who has not yet submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are people out there who say, well, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then he's not your Savior. But the truth of the matter is, and you can look around uh, at, at real-life experience, and you find that there's, there's a whole lot of people, Nancy, who uh, are Christians, but they also struggle with temptations. They struggle with their flesh. Not everybody is sanctified as completely as we'd like to be. Uh, but the truth is they're carnal Christians. Now, the proof of that, biblically, Nancy, is the book of 1 Corinthians. I said yesterday in the, in the introduction to the study that this is a letter that is a, a, completely a letter of rebuke, a letter of correction. This was a church, carnal though it was, Paul makes reference to them over and over and over uh, as brothers in the Lord. We also know that the Corinthians responded. They responded uh, by, by taking Paul's criticisms to heart and allowing those things to actually change their lives. We know that because 2 Corinthians, which was written about six months after the fact, 2 Corinthians indicates that uh, they, they took him to heart. So the, the letter was effective. It would have been easy for them to think of this Paul. Who is he to judge us? And Paul lets them know that I am the apostle. I am the pastor that founded this church. You know who I am. But yeah, unfortunately, there are carnal Christians out there. And when they stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, they will be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about being saved as one escaping through the fire, sort of meaning like, yeah, they got in because of the work of Christ on the cross, but barely it wasn't based on anything that they did. Now let me say this, Nancy, not just to you, but to the entire audience here. This process of sanctification requires us to change. When we meet Jesus, we need to change. If you have made a profession of Christ, but you haven't changed your behavior, then we also need to take Paul's advice and examine our hearts daily to see whether we're in the faith. I can promise there's no eternal security, there's no uh, confidence that we're with Christ when we're walking in rebellion. So change is necessary, and meeting Jesus, really meeting Jesus, changes people. Now, God will change us completely. He'll change us quickly. Sadly, there are a lot of people that change very slowly, if at all. But we all have the power within us to change radically. And, of course, that's what the power of God in the believer is supposed to do. So... I guess the best way to answer your question, Nancy, is that yes, there are some carnal Christians who are going to end up in heaven. They're real believers. Their sins have been forgiven. There are other uh, carnal professing Christians who, when they um, encounter Jesus on the day of judgment, they're going to say to him, uh, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, depart from me, for I never really knew you. The thing that we've got to remember about this, Nancy, is that it's not our call to make. Early in my Christian walk, I, I was, because I was older, I was um, 40 years old, in effect. And uh, I remember looking at the way people lived, I thought, how could you be a Christian? How could you? But, but the truth is, um, those people proved in the long run to really be Christians, some of them. Others didn't, I don't know. But 
what we've got to do is be sure that we're walking with Jesus and the Lordship, submitting to his Lordship, letting him be in charge of your life is really the only thing that matters. It's what produces great fruit coming from our lives. Stay tuned, Nancy. If you live streamed us yesterday, uh, we're going to go very slowly through the book of 1 Corinthians, and there's lots and lots of issues that um, um, we're going to have answers for. So thank you for the call, or for the question, rather. Here's a question from Jake, a timely one. He says, Pastor Ron, is not voting a sin? Um, It's not in your Bible, Jake. Now, sin, remember, is just missing the mark. And and while I don't want to go so far as to say not voting is a sin, I think not voting, when we have the opportunity to express a biblically-based opinion about matters that are of monumental importance in our country, I think not expressing that is compromising our witness. I don't think it pleases the Lord, and I think it's something that we ought to do. Now, I realize that voting is a pain in the neck, I realize that we've gone and we've seen long, long lines. Uh, I realize there are people who are afraid of exposure to uh, the COVID-19 virus. Um, But this is the future of our country at stake. And we ought to make an impression on that election. So I, I won't say it's a sin, but I will say that I don't think it pleases the Lord. And I know that's sort of splitting hairs, but that's a distinction I want to make because I don't want somebody to say, well, you're a legalist and, and, and all of that. I just think it's something that we've got to do. Paul and I, we voted uh, the day we got back into town from our vacation. It didn't take very long to do it. I'm glad it's out of the way. I also realize that this entire election process has literally worn people out. People are tired. We had a call last uh, Friday, I think, on the program where somebody mentioned that that uh, they didn't want to vote. They're just tired of it. And I realize that. I'm, I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm disgusted by the behavior of our candidates. I'm even more disgusted by the behavior of our media. And yet, um, the best way I can impact outside of prayer, the best way I can impact the system, Jake, is to uh, to vote. Uh, at least let my one vote count for whatever its value is and and do it that way. So um, I hope that helps. 340-9585 on this Monday program for your calls and questions. Here is a question from Natalie. Uh, she wants to know, what is a word of knowledge? Um, Natalie, a word of knowledge is, is, is interesting. And this is, this is a great question. Again, in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be able to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And I will talk about the word of knowledge when we get to that point. But a word of knowledge is when God sort of supernaturally gives you a, an idea or gives you a thought or gives you some information that you wouldn't otherwise have. It is no question supernatural. Uh, It's God giving you the ability to minister to somebody. Uh, I'll give you an example of a word of knowledge that that I've had personally. Now, I get these words of knowledge at times when I'm preaching. You know, I'll be teaching the the passage of Scripture. Uh, If you would come to all three of our services, Natalie, you'd find that all three of them are very different, same basic notes, same basic outline, certainly the same passage of Scripture. But God knows who's here. 
and he'll give us a, a word of knowledge from time to time. I don't know who it's for in that instance, but God will speak and he'll say um, um, to me, mention this. And, and when I say Satan, I don't want to sound super spiritual. It's not like I stop and I get this voice from heaven or anything, but it's just God speaking in my heart. When I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit wants to give me some information, he'll give me a word of knowledge. And perhaps I'll say something like, there's somebody here today who's really struggling with depression. God wants you to know that he's got you. That's a word of knowledge. Um, There was a time when there was this young man who was constantly wearing me out with questions. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's almost like Paul and Philippi with the with the woman who was demon possessed, um, just wearing me out. And finally, I said to him, "Do you really want to know the answers? I mean, you keep asking the same questions, and you don't seem to make any change." And he was asking me about relationships. He was asking me about sexual immorality, those kind of things, over and over and over. And finally, the Lord spoke to my heart one day and said, "Ask him if he's gay." And I asked him. I said. Are you a homosexual? And he broke down crying. There's no way I would have known this. There was nothing about his appearance or mannerisms that would suggest that he was. But as soon as I asked the question, it was like a knife cut him to the heart. And then we could finally get down and talk. And I had the privilege of leading that young man to the Lord. Um a long time ago, but, but, but it's something I never would have known. So that's what a word of knowledge is. And this is, Natalie, something that I think Christians ought to be seeking the Lord for all the time. Whenever we're in a conversation with somebody, when I'm in counseling with people, um, sort of behind the scenes, I'm saying, okay, Lord, give me wisdom. What do you want to say? What's the real problem here? You know, sometimes when you do marriage counseling especially, you can talk to two people in the same room and it's like they never met. Their stories are so different. And I need to know, Lord, who's right, who's wrong, who's being honest, who's not. And the Lord will tell me those things. But this is a gift of the Spirit. It's a gift that I think is available to every believer who will seek it. And rather than giving our own opinion or rather than just giving what we think is right and biblical, I think the Lord will sometimes interject with a word of knowledge that will sort of cut to the chase. And in counseling, especially one-on-one, Natalie, that's always a good thing. So I hope that answers your question, but uh, it's a gift God wants to give you, so ask Him for it. And as you're talking to people, uh, especially in difficult situations, ask Him to, to fill you in on all the details. Good question. Here is a question from Rich. He said, can you explain dispensationalism and whether or not it's right? Um, Rich, let me start with the easy part. Yeah, I believe that dispensationalism is the correct way to understand and interpret our Bibles. Uh, I I don't think there's any other effective way or or any other effective hermeneutic that helps us understand uh, our Bibles and, and tells us, teaches us how to apply our Bibles um, um, apart from uh, dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism simply means that God deals with people at different ways in different times throughout history. We know, for example, he dealt with Moses and Jews through the law. That was the dispensational law. 
to make this as simple as I can, Jesus, when he came, he said, uh, I, I give you a new covenant or I give you a new command. And his covenant, of course, is a covenant of grace. So we are currently living rich under the dispensation of grace. And if you go through your Bible, there are seven dispensations that are pretty easily identified. Now, there's a problem with dispensationalism only when people go to extremes. It's called hyper-dispensationalism, and there are people that will find, you know, 30, 40, 50 different dispensations. And in the New Testament, they'll separate the book of Acts from the work of Jesus, and, and there's no need to do that. Extremes are always wrong. Extremes are always wrong, Rich. And when you can get into trouble with something that's good, like the, the, the dispensationalism we're talking about, and you, you make it extreme, and then it becomes unhealthy. So it's just God dealing with different people in different ways and different times. Now, I'm glad I'm not in the dispensation of law. I'm grateful that, that we live in this dispensation of grace and unmerited favor. And it's really, really important. Now, here's why this is so important. When you interpret the Bible, and and if you've listened to this program, we get all kinds of calls from people who want to know, do we still have to keep the law? Why don't we worship on the Sabbath? Um, um, What about generational curses? We get those kind of questions. And if you go back, especially in the Old Testament, and you don't differentiate between who God is speaking to, then you're not going to be able to correctly uh, understand um, or, or apply the passage of Scripture. Um, when God gave the law, he was speaking to Israel. He wasn't speaking to Christians. When God said to worship on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, he was speaking to Israel, not to Christians. So we understand that, then we can look at the scriptures and we can make a healthy application. When we hear things like, uh, um, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to uh, not to harm you, but plans to prosper you. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. we all love that verse, but you've got to understand the context and the audience to whom the Bible is speaking through the prophet. And if you miss that, then there's a whole lot of Christians who end up taking the promises that were made to directly to Israel. And they, they take those and apply them to their own lives. And of course, that's going to cause frustration because those promises were never given to us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, um, th- that's not a promise to the United States. Now, there's a general principle there that's true. If you want to hear from the Lord, you need to humble yourself before him. You need to repent of sin. You need to get right with God. You need to be with him. But if you don't understand the purpose of the promise or the timing of the promise, then you're not going to come up with the right meaning or understanding of the passage. So, Rich, dispensationalism is a good thing. Let me suggest to you the the Schofield Study Bible, S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D, the Schofield Study Bible. It's uh, a a very balanced view of dispensationalism. Um, uh, Schofield was a, a, a biblical genius. And you will you will be blessed, and it will help you to understand and rightly divide the Word of God. That's a good question, Rich. Thank you very, very much. Our next question comes from Jessica. And Jessica, just so you know, I hate this question. <laughs> she says, First Timothy 2.15 says, Women will be saved through childbearing, but what about women who cannot bear children? 
I, I hate the question, Jessica, because I wish Paul hadn't written it. I wish perhaps that he would have explained himself a little more thoroughly. Um, as a result of the fall, women can't preach. Women have limitations in the church in terms of position authority. But then he just throws in this, but women will be saved through childbearing. Now, we know that women aren't saved eternally by having a child. There's a whole bunch of women who've had babies who are going to spend eternity in hell. We know that to be true. Um, the question, the difficulty is, well, what then does this mean? And there's really no way to understand. Now, we have to look at the context of the passage, Jessica. And First Timothy chapter 2 is about order in the church of God. That's clearly what Paul is addressing. And when he talks about order, he goes through these things, and he goes about the order of leadership. Women cannot be pastors. Women cannot be a part of the leadership in the church. Um, women with authority over men. He makes that crystal clear. So what's he saying? I think what he's saying is that women will be saved through childbearing. I think that's his way of saying that just accept the role that God has given you in life. And in the culture that Paul was writing to, the primary role of women then, not now, but then the primary role was to bear children, to raise children, to know and to love the Lord. And and I think what he's saying is, look, just accept the roles God has given you. If you want to be a pastor, God says you can't be a pastor, then I think what, what he's saying to you in this passage is just accept the role God has given you. Use the gifts God has given you to honor him in any way that you possibly can. But there's really no way anybody for 2,000 years has understood clearly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's one of those things that I'm going to ask him about when I get to heaven. And as some of you who have been listening here for a long time know, the Apostle Paul is my hero, and I, uh, I, I'm anxious to get to, to be able to meet him after I spend some time, of course, with Jesus first. Good question. We're inside, I think, five minutes for this half of the program. We love your live calls and questions. You're always more interesting than I am. Thomas wants to know, he said, Pastor Ron, how should we react toward believers who have fallen away? Um, Thomas, it's a, a valuable question insofar as we need to remember that believers who have fallen away are the, the, um, the one, one of the, the targets of our ministry. Um, we need to love them, we need to pray for them, but we also need to be direct with them. Again, one of the values of First Corinthians that we're just getting started with on Sundays here at Calvary Chapel is that Paul gives us an idea when people who've fallen away, who claim to be believers, we can understand how to deal with them because that's exactly what Paul did with the, the believers in Corinth. He was, sounds harsh, but he wasn't really harsh. He was loving he was direct. He was um, interested in, in their restoration. Uh, and so, too, we ought to, to be. So if there is a believer, somebody in your life, Thomas, that has fallen away, then you need to be that loving thorn in the flesh to them. Every time you see him, you need to say, are you ready to come back to Jesus? How can I help you? What can, what can I do to help you find Jesus again? So we ought to be active in pursuing those people. We don't know if they're real believers or not. 
but we need to help them find their way back to Jesus. Now, I think equally important, Thomas, is the question you didn't ask, how should we react when a believer who has fallen away returns? Well, then we ought to open our arms, we ought to open our heart, we ought to open the doors of fellowship to them. I think sometimes we have a tendency to treat backsliders, that's the word that we Christians use for sin, I think we have a tendency to treat them uh, as though they're on probation. And we can't do that because that's not the case. We need to look at the, the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And, and, you know, when they come back and when they repent, it is happy, happy day. One of our worship songs yesterday, the first one, was, Oh, happy day. And when people return... There's nothing better. Paula told me uh, after church yesterday, and I can't see who's in our sanctuary. Uh, Paula t- told me, she said, there's a whole family of people, and and they were all there, and, and some of those kids have really fallen away from the Lord. And to see them in church again was wonderful. Now, I don't know where their heart is with God, but the Holy Spirit's still knocking on the door of their heart, and they were all in church yesterday with their parents. And it's just really a good thing. So when people repent, we need to let them know, no guilt zone. This is, this is a place where guilt's not allowed, condemnation's not allowed, because God has forgiven you, he's opened his arms to you. And in the process, we've gained a brother or a sister. Good question, Thomas. Well, we'd like some phone calls in the second half of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program this is the word to stand on for life 340-9585 for your live calls and questions toll free you can call us at 877-630-KSLR K-S-L-R. Here is an anonymous question. A question, by the way, that breaks my heart. Um, my pastor told me that because I spoke in tongues once, I might not be saved. He said that demons were behind speaking in tongues, and I should run away from it or face losing my salvation. I'm afraid. Can you help? Uh, anonymous, let, let me cut to the chase. You need a new church, a new pastor. Um, this is ungodly. It is unbiblical. Uh, I can't imagine the torment that you must be going through as a result. You know, one of the reasons that I'm so excited about teaching through First Corinthians, although it's going to take us a year to get through it, uh, is because we're going to deal with all these issues. 
because Corinth was a, a church out of control. They were abusing spiritual gifts. So we're going to talk about tongues the right way, the wrong way. The Apostle Paul himself said that I wish you all spoke in tongues more than I do. He spoke in tongues and he said, basically, that's a great gift. You should use it. He didn't say it's only going to be good for a certain period of time. In fact, it's written in the continuous present tense. And and the idea there is that this is something that we ought to seek. Every gift from God is a good gift. I have the gift of tongues. Um, Tongues need to be used properly. Um, One of the problems with tongues is that they are abused so badly that people just say, I don't want anything to do with them. That sounds creepy to me. Um, So, yeah, tongues need to be used in order. And they need to be subject to the guidelines uh, that the Bible sets for using the gift. After all, the gift belongs to God. But tongues are a really good thing. It says when a person speaks or in tongues, he or she is speaking to God, not to men, but to God. It also says that this is a gift that is edifying. It strengthens our worship. It strengthens our relationship with God. How can that be bad? And no gift given by God can be empowered by demons. It's that simple. So uh, run to the gift. Take the Apostle Paul's advice. Run to the gift. Let me put it this way. You run to the gift, run away from your church and find a new one. And Jesus is the guarantor of your salvation. He's the one that empowered you with this spirit. And that was a seal, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. So please, please, please don't let your pastor cause you difficulty if, um, I mean, the enemy is is behind that kind of counsel and he will be there to try to make you feel guilty and you're getting ripped off. If you are using the gifts that God has given you, then you're bringing honor and glory to God. If you're ignoring the gifts that God has given you, well, in fact, then you're um, quenching the spirit. So you don't want to do those things. Tongues is a very, very good gift. Thank you very much. Uh, Phil called in, he said, uh, to our studio. He said, can you please clarify Matthew 22, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. I can do that, Phil. That one's pretty easy. Um, The the parable of the wedding banquet and and, and other places where this is referred to uh, is just Jesus saying the call of God goes out to everyone. That's the many. Relative to the people that accept the message, that's the few. And so here's what he's saying. The invitation goes out to everybody. But when people refuse it, when people are unwilling to accept the invitation, uh, then they prove that they've not been chosen by God. Now remember this whole idea of being chosen by God. Isn't God restricting people from heaven? What he's saying is God chooses who are his based on what he knows, his foreknowledge. God knows everything. He lives outside of time and space. And so he knows who are his. Um, It's not like, well, okay, I'm going to call everybody. I'm going to invite everybody, but I'm going to trick them because I'm only going to let a few in. That's not at all what's being said. If you want to find out, Phil, if you're chosen by God, all you have to do is say yes to his invitation. And since evidently you're listening to a Christian program and reading your Bible, uh, you have already proven that uh, when God issued his invitation to you, you were chosen by God. And you responded to the call. 
Thank you very much for the question. Let's go to line one. We've got an anonymous caller. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hello. Hello? Yes, hello. I just wanted to Hi. ask, um, when um, when people ask questions uh, uh, and answer questions uh, that are Bible questions, most people refer to Apostle Paul instead of Jesus, and uh, the majority of the time, uh, most of the pastors are just quoting from Apostle Paul. And I just mm-hmm. wondered, uh, since Jesus is the Son of God, uh, then why do most people quote Paul instead of Jesus uh, the majority of the time? Good question. Good question. I think they're interchangeable in the sense that Paul, writing by the Spirit of God, um, um, was, was in, in the Spirit of God testifying of Jesus, we can say it's the same thing. When you've got something in your Scripture that was written by Paul, then it carries the exact same authority that if it, as, as if it were in red letters in your Bible. So what we say when we're saying Paul says, we're identifying the author of the particular book that that statement appeared in. So when I say uh, Paul said, I'm referring to one of his epistles. When I say Peter said, I'm referring to one of his epistles. And of course, from the book of Acts forward, um, Jesus isn't writing the Bible. He's writing it through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's using human authors. In fact, uh, anonymous in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I have said when I'm teaching, Mark's gospel says, or Luke's gospel says, um, but while we have red letters, those are direct quotes from Jesus, uh, everything in your Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, every word is written by God the Holy Spirit. He's the author, but he used human vessels to write it. So when we say Paul said, or Peter said, or James said, we're simply giving attribution uh, to the, the, the human author and helping people locate the book that we're talking about. Does that make sense to you? I guess we lost Anonymous on the phone. He probably hung up. I hope so. Thank you. 340-9585. Here is the question from, a question from Ben. Uh, the Bible says Jews crucified Jesus, but it was the Romans who actually did it. Why the discrepancy? Um, remember, the Jews are the one who asked Pilate for Jesus to be crucified. And when he, um, um, with the Jews' desire of their heart, Pilate tried to let him off the hook. Um, Who shall I give to you, Barabbas or Jesus? They said, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So the truth is, um, the Jews were the motive behind Jesus' crucifixion. But it was the Romans who actually performed it. That's not a discrepancy at all. I'll go one step farther, Ben. Uh, I crucified Jesus. You crucified Jesus. Um, We're guilty of his death. When Peter was uh, proclaiming the glorious gospel message in Acts chapter 2, and then again in Acts chapter 4, when the church was entirely Jewish, um, um, you know, he, he basically said, you killed God, and the Holy Spirit, it said, pricked their heart. And they cried out, Brothers, what can we do? In other words, they're saying, you're right, we killed him, but what can we do? And he just said so simply, I love this, he said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you will receive the times of refreshing promised by God. I love that, Ben, because the truth is we all crucified him. He was crucified for the sins of the world. 
Jesus' interest is in people. So he was crucified by sinners. Again, it was the Jews who asked for it. It was the Romans who carried it out. They were the ones in charge. Um, But you and I, we were the reason for Jesus being crucified. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Jacob says, how can I be sure to discern the will of God correctly? Um, Jacob, if you're looking for exact science, you're not going to get it. I remember as a brand new believer thinking that, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of confused now. I don't know what God wants me to do, but a time's going to come where I'm going to know exactly what God wants me to do and I'm going to be able to do it. That time never comes. God doesn't send me an email every morning with a list of things to do. I wish he did. That way we could be sure that we're in the will of God. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He wants to teach us to walk by faith rather than by sight. And if we'll do that, um, then then what we have to learn to do is to trust God. We're um, the vessel. He's the power behind whatever he's prepared for us to do. Now, I want to be really clear with you here, Jacob, because there are formulas in the Bible that will teach us how to know the will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, first and foremost among them, therefore I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy. And all, all uh, Paul is saying there, Jacob, is that in view of everything God's done. Now, in the book of Romans, um, the, the, the first 11 chapters tell us what God has done. Tell us his heart for us. Tell us his motive. It presents the problem of sin, separation from God, and then the solution of sin. We've got all of them in the first 11 chapters. So when he starts chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, in view of all this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What that means, Jacob, is that we surrender our heart to Jesus. We, we make his will, not our will, the one thing that we want to do. And it says this, it says, um, when we offer our bodies to Jesus as living sacrifices, we're not to be conformed to the world or the pattern of this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the only place our mind can be renewed is in the Word of God. And then the Bible says, then you will know and approve the perfect, acceptable will of God. So that's the only way we can discern the will of God is to walk with Jesus every day, to surrender to his lordship, to to make sure that we're available for God to use. And if we'll do that, Jacob, then we've got no problem walking in the will of God. Now, we won't always know what it is. I think sometimes we think walking in the will of God is having certainty. But here's the only certainty we have. And this, for me, was a source of great freedom many, many years ago. If you're walking with Jesus and you're in the will of God today and you get up in the morning and you promise that day to God you walk with him tomorrow and you do it the next day and the next day and the next day, you can't miss the will of God. You'll wake up one day, five years, ten years down the road and you'll say, how did I ever get here? And Jesus just smiled and said, you just walk with me every day. You know, Jacob, I'm from California. I got saved there and really figured our kids were there. We figured we'd spend our lives there. We had no earthly idea that coming to San Antonio was ever going to be on God's agenda. And he never told us until exactly the right time. 
It didn't make any sense. We certainly didn't have the money we needed to come. The idea of starting a church from scratch in a place where we didn't know anybody just seems so silly to me. I'm a very logical, practical man. And yet when he told us to come and we took that step of faith, we had no information, no direction other than to go. When we got here, it would have been great if there had been 500 of our closest friends that met us and, oh, we got a building, we got this, here's, here's the plan. But none of that. Jesus just said, walk with me every day. Now, 25 years later, 25 years in a few months, 25 years later, we know we're in the perfect will of God. And there's just nothing for a believer that's any more comforting than that. I know, Paula knows, every day we wake up, this is where God led us, this is where he's with us, this is where he empowers us. We also know that there's no way we can quit. We've known from the beginning that we were going to do our entire term of ministry here. And believe me, there were a lot of times when it, it would seem like, well, are we crazy? This doesn't make any sense. There were times when Paula would come in, and believe me, Paula loves me, and this girl loves God with all of her heart. But there were times when I could see her looking at me like, you've lost your mind. But here we are. And we know every day this is where God's wanted us to be all along. And Jacob, there's nothing that will be more comforting or more secure or provide the peace of God, especially through difficult times, and there have been many, than knowing every day that you're in the perfect will of God. So I hope that answers your question, Jacob. Just be with Jesus. I tell my church that all the time. And you cannot miss the will of God. I had somebody call one time and say, well, how, how do I know that I, I might miss what God wants me to do? If you're with Jesus following him, he said, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name and they follow me. If we're following Jesus, how can we miss his will? Unless he's going to trick us. And of course, I don't think that's what he's going to do. Good question. Thank you very much. Again, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's um, a question with no name. It came in. Um, Ezekiel 37 talks about the rebirth of Israel. Does that mean that Jews who die apart from Christ will be given a second chance? And salvation. Um, no, Ezekiel doesn't mean that at all. When you get to Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, uh, we're, we're talking about the, the, the very end times. Now, Israel, in matter of fact, has been reborn uh, in 1948. Uh, they were tested by wars in 1967 and 1973 with overwhelming odds. So Israel has already been reborn. Um, when you're talking about Ezekiel in those chapters, we're talking about the nation of Israel, not individual Jews. And no one ever will get a second chance. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed in the man once to die and then face the judgment. So it's very important that we understand that there's no chance. We have to make the decision about where we're going to spend eternity while we're alive in this body. So individual Jews come to to heaven the same way you did, I did. 
And that's by accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, and no one includes Jews. Go to Zechariah chapter 14, and it's clear that when Jesus returns, one-third of the Jews are going to repent and accept him as their Savior, which means necessarily two-thirds of those people are going to perish and spend eternity in hell. So nobody, Jew or Gentile, gets a second chance. Here is a question from April. She wants to know, was the wine Jesus made at the wedding in Cana alcoholic? April, not only was it alcoholic, but I'll bet it was, and I don't drink at all, don't like the taste, but for those of you that like wine, this would have been the best wine ever. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Something made by Jesus, like like drinking the water that came from the rock uh, in in the, the Exodus wilderness. Uh, can you imagine how that water must have tasted? Well, the same thing is true uh, with the wine. We know the wine was superior. He saved the best till till last. Um, uh, Jesus made it. Now, the, the, the objection, and maybe this is what's behind your question, April, um, the objection is, well, why would Jesus turn water into something that's sinful? Um, wine isn't sinful. Wine is a substance. Um, the abuse of wine is sim- sinful. The abuse of alcohol is sinful. But in and of itself, it's not good or bad. In the same way money isn't good or bad. It's just a tool. We can sin in our pursuit of it, or we can can sin in our excesses. But um, make no mistake, the wine that Jesus made in Cana was not only alcoholic, but it was of the best possible quality. So I, I always get a little bit frustrated, April, when people get caught up with that. Um, remember, just because we abuse wine doesn't mean that wine is bad. Rick says, Pastor Ron, what role does the United States play in end times prophecy? Rick, um, none at all. Uh, if we're in the last days, as I believe we are, then uh, we who are Christians in the United States have a, a, an effective role uh, in the end times scenario. Um, but but the United States as a nation, I know this is hard for us in the West to accept. We think the sun rises and sets on the United States. But that's not, not so. Jerusalem is the, the center of God's plan. That's where... Every, that's where all of the actors are going to be staged and, and how the play is going to unfold. But the United States really doesn't have any role at all. There is no mention of us. Um, there are false teaching books like the Harbinger and, and uh, Jonathan Kahn's newest one, uh, which says the United States is a covenant country. That's simply not true. Um, the United States is relatively insignificant. Let me think out loud for a minute, Rick. I believe that the United States was created um, by the will of God um, so God could raise us up to be Israel's protector in the world. Now, at the time the United States was created, of course, there was no Israel. Israel ended effectively in 70 A.D., but God knew that in 1948, after World War II, God knew that the sentiment of the world, because of the horrors of the Holocaust, God knew that Israel um, needed a protector. And so in 1776, God created the United States of America. Uh, We rebelled against Britain. Um, There's 
questions about whether or not those who were Christians should have rebelled. That's not the issue. We did. God knew it. And so he blessed this nation. And while we fought through all kinds of difficulties, we were guilty of all kinds of sin, God raised this nation up for a particular reason. Israel, in 1948, to return to their land, needed a protector, a provider. And that's what we did. And we've been doing it since 1948. Now, obviously, um, we stopped doing that um, in the Obama years. We became Israel's enemy. Israel became our enemy, a de facto enemy. And um, I, I believe that was sort of the beginning of the end. Um, uh, and the United States has sort of abdicated its role as Israel's friend. Now, gratefully, this president has has um, restored Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We've put our ambassadors there, uh, our embassies. Um, but even still, we're still trying to negotiate property settlements when God says that there's not going to be a two-state agreement that's acceptable to him. And I just think that the way things have gone in this last 10, 12, 15 years, I think what we've seen is the United States step away from Israel. And Israel sort of had to fend for herself. And I think because of that, we've lost our position. We've lost the blessing of God in our lives. Jesus said, God said, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who bless or who curse you. And we have for too long a time, Rick, we have backed away from that commitment. And I doesn't I don't think that bodes well. So uh, you won't find the United States anywhere in Scripture. Um, we're sort of carried away with our own self importance. But um, I think in the end times we're gonna see the power uh, in the world shift to the Middle East. And um, I think we're going to be wondering what happened. I think the people that live in the United States, um, are, are, especially as we approach the rapture of the church, I think we're going to start wondering what's happened. We already see that shift. You know, we see uh, the role that Russia plays in the world, more notably the role that China is playing in the world. Um, and we sort of seem like we're in the minor leagues now. I know that doesn't make Christians happy to hear that. But we've lost our way, and I think we've lost our way because we've lost sight of what God has asked us to do since 1948. As long as we were a supporter, Israel's biggest supporter, sometimes Israel's only supporter, as long as we did that, the blessing of God poured out. The richest nation, the most powerful nation in the history of the world I don't believe that's true anymore. Could be. Hope it comes back. But if it doesn't, it's not God's fault, it's ours. Rick, thanks for the question. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're delighted to have you here. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Honey.